Hey team, welcome back and welcome to episode 38 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. Today, we have a second round of Transition FAQ. Back on episode 33, we did a round of these and we had so much fun that Charles and I decided to answer another set. So as a reminder, the questions that we asked were, what questions do you have as you consider practice ownership? And what area of transition or practice ownership concerns you the most other than debt? We know you care about debt. And what do you want to know about it? So listen in and hope you learned something. Ready to get going? I'm ready. All right. So Christy, we've got a stack. I bet we could do five other episodes on this. Mm -hmm. So this one starts off and says, so if you buy a practice, but the staff sucks, (laughs) what do you do? Well... My first response is nothing. Right. Because if you bought a practice, I'm hoping it was at least a decent practice financially. Financially, yeah. With those people. And so we're going to do nothing. And we're going to learn them. And we're then going to make our decision based upon going in there. Why do they suck? Maybe they just haven't been led. Maybe it wasn't a good environment. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why they might suck. And maybe you'd find out they really do suck and you got to let them go. But that's not going to be one of the first changes you make. Clearly, you need to get in there, get some stability and then start making changes. I mean, I think that when you're looking at a business, you have to value the people. And if the business was ran financially well, which I assume this person's talking about when they say it's successful, somehow they did it, right? And so, and sometimes, like you said, it's just that group of people just didn't have leadership. Mm -hmm. And this is the worst analogy, but... It could be like a good old dog. It's really, really bad. <laughs> you know, the dog's acting up, but just didn't have a good leader. Just, sometimes we just need boundaries. <laughs> I'm pretty sure with that comment on the air, I could never own a dental practice from that point forward. Pretty sure. <laughs> this is another kind of fall of the concerns. This person definitely has a concern about people. And so making your own, just the staff, you know, the environment. And what if they didn't like the building? It's kind of a two-part concern there. So making it their own with staff and environment. And then what if they don't like the building? Like, how do they handle that? Yeah, I mean, I think making it your own, I see that as a gradual process. Again, I think that if you come in as a new owner and you want to change everything, I think it seems forced. I think you first kind of have to go in and change by, you know, the trickle down effect. Like, if I act as though I want to act and start implementing some of the things and they see that this is how I am culturally or this is the environment I want to foster, then I think some of that stuff happens organically. But I think the more gradual, it will become yours, right? I mean, that's the goal that you own this. It doesn't have to do that in six months. Just when you read that, I thought about a buyer we had who bought a practice and literally bought it from the complete opposite type of person. She's young and female and she bought it from an older guy. There were like deer heads on the wall and it was like very camo, kind of West Texas type of a practice. A great practice still. You know, the guy was super nice. Just totally different, right? Now she's like social media everywhere. You know, so so she's just so great and you can just tell the staff have just blossomed and it's just a different practice and you can tell and patients are happy and so again it wasn't that the old was bad it was great but it just wasn't her and she slowly made changes over the last two years to make it hers so I mean I think you can do that and maintain the integrity of what you bought what are your thoughts on the building I mean, you don't have to love the building. If you don't love the building, don't buy the building and operate in it and then save up some cash and then find a location. You can move it. You just have to be super cognizant of patients and how far they're going to go based on where you are geographically. So my thoughts on the on the staff. I talked to this young couple this week, and it definitely their own. A beautiful brand. I saw the website. I saw the pictures. I saw the layout. 
you know, they both work together. They're both on the call together. You can tell there's a definite connection with them. But they're three years into the practice and low new patient flow and mm-hmm. foreign collections. And so it's theirs. It's beautiful yeah. and it's theirs. They got the brand and everything they want. It's just there's just no money. And I really felt the stress over the phone in that situation. And so it's a balance. Yeah. I'm telling you, by having a successful financial business, it does create some opportunity. You can maybe create that own environment. So that's what I, I would comment there. On the building, agree. I think about from a building standpoint, I certainly want to think about space. I want the building to have enough room for me to grow. And then if I'm going to be marketing to the public, in this case, you know, my GPs, my orthos, maybe my pediatric dentist, I want good signage, good parking, you know, a nice layout. But there's times where I got a crappy building on the endodontist, I really don't care. Yeah. So I could be in the back back corner. So if we don't like the building, we're not going to purchase it. We're going to try to get a, about a five-year lease, maybe a 10-year lease with a five-year option for us to opt out. All right. So this one says, is how do I bring up that the seller, that they want direct 100% financing because this is a young dental student just graduated from school. And they have a comment here that Wells Fargo will only lend them $450,000. And so how does this young D4 convince the selling doctor to do a hundred percent financing is the question. It's going to be a hard sell. I mean, unless there's a relationship there, you're going back to your hometown. It's the person you've always talked about taking over their practice. I mean, unless there's a relationship there or the seller doesn't have a lot of options because maybe they're rural and they just are thinking about closing up shop. I think it's going to be hard to do that. I don't think it's impossible. And I think that if you have the right mentality, the right sales pitch, the right discussion, you're humble in other areas, I think it's possible. But you're basically asking the seller, hey, I'll give you X amount now, and then I want you to finance this over 10 years because that's likely what you're going to have to ask of them. Yeah, so I mean, you're coming out of school with nothing. Yeah. No experience, you're a D4, and let's say it's a smaller practice, it's a 600 collection practice, and the price that you and the seller agree upon is 400,000, and they are just going to do you know seller financing for the next 10 years at 5%. There's no way. Mm-hmm. If I'm a financial advisor to that dentist, if I'm a friend of that dentist, and they say, hey, Charles, what would you do? I say, absolutely no way. What yeah. you do is why would you put everything at risk? Now, I think it's realistic if you do come across this practice, you build a relationship with them and either A, work in that practice, keep the relationship going or work in a different practice, go save up a simple amount of money. We're talking on 400000 we're talking maybe $30,000 mm-hmm. of cash, which you easily can do in the first six to seven months. And so go do that. And then we'll start building relationships with maybe the Wells or the B of A's or you know, whoever our banks of choice are. And let's go down that road. But don't get caught up on the first person who gets out of dental school is going to be the winner with ownership, even though I know that's what we preach. Six, eight, nine months, 12 months, it's fine. It's yeah. fine to deal with it before we're yeah. going to be completely married. Next question. This is a concern. So they're looking at the office. It's very old and very outdated. Oh, it's the first time. Shocking. First time I ever heard that. What would it take to upgrade the office and where would you begin? Well, you can probably spend as much money as you want to spend on the office. And you can probably do it all at one time if you really wanted. We would suggest neither of those things. So we've done a couple of episodes where we go back and talk to previous buyers and had other conversations, not on the podcast with other buyers. And really the number one thing that we hear from them is the best thing they did was not make immediate changes, like not go in there and just upgrade all the equipment, right? 
again, you've bought something that's profitable. And if you've paid a good price for it and the price is fair, it's been doing that with whatever exists in the office. Now, if it's something clinical that you can't provide the level of care you need without, then fine, by all means. But if it's that it's not completely computerized and completely digital and that would just make your life better and you want it to look pretty, well then let's hold off and let's not make a change for a few months because those are big overhauls. And if your staff that you're inheriting have never used computers or never used digital, that's going to be a big change and it could hit hurt profitability in addition to you investing in it in from a capital standpoint. So here's an example this week, busy week for calls. Oh my gosh, I'm so tired. Um, they didn't let me go to the bathroom yesterday. I was stuck <laughs> in my little cube. Chain <laughs> on the door. <laughs> Chain on the door, 11 calls. This call was awesome because this young man, he's presenting this case to me and basically is telling me that in the emails I read it, he didn't like it, didn't like it, didn't like it, didn't like it, didn't like it. All the negatives, like paragraph of negatives. Trying to convince himself. Convince himself it wasn't good, but I don't read that. I just look at the numbers. So this was a price of $700,000. It happened to be an orthodontic practice, and the collections was nine hundred, and it was making about 400000 But again, in our education with my orthodontic listeners, Collections is one thing, but production is another. So this practice was producing well over a million dollars. Starts look good. I could see that not only made $400,000 today, but I could see it was going to be making more than $400,000 in the future. Now, I can also see in the pictures on the website that it did need a, a bit of an upgrade. Here's the math I want you to walk away from this when you're thinking about an upgrade. Let's say from a simple, like, I can't work in paper charts. I need <laughs> to have computers and scanners. Let's say it's $100,000 that you must invest in. So instead of borrowing $700,000, you borrow eight hundred. dollars For every $100,000 that you borrow, it will only cost you $1,000 a month in debt payments. Say it differently. The practice purchase price was $700,000, and you're buying a business that basically is netting $400,000. You're going to have to pay the bank, in this example, $85,000 of debt payments mm-hmm. to make three fifteen. Mm-hmm. okay? I'm saying that if we still purchase this practice and it was crap of equipment, and I could put $100,000 more, instead of making three fifteen, we're gonna have it nice and pretty and it's all gonna work, and now I'm gonna make 300. The point is it still works. Mm-hmm. It still works for this person to pull the trigger. And so as we went through this exercise, I think I got him pretty excited. He's ready to roll. To me, this is like no different than you buy a house and the people have chosen horrible paint colors and there's tile instead of wood floor, like whatever, right? Like the bones are still there and the neighborhood is still there and that's what you're kind of hoping to buy. Right. Then they have the pool, but it's a, you really want the pool. It's on your checklist and the $50,000 pool is going to cost you 400 bucks more a month or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I love this one here. It starts off with what of the old man, you know? I first thought he was talking about me. I was like, why is this guy talking? What if old man Loretto, I always refer to myself as old man Loretto. So I was first I was like, is he talking about Charles? But he says, what if the old, it didn't say woman either. I love this. Old man. What if the old, old man. man who you're buying the practice from stays on as the associate, but has a difficult time, quote unquote, being the associate. And he continues to act as the lead doc, the superior in the office. And I am now being looked upon as the still the associate as an owner. Thoughts, suggestions on how to handle this? 
Man, so I feel like you have some good thoughts on this. I think this is hard. I think you have to remember that you are the owner and that you are in control of the situation. And I think there are ways to do it respectfully, you know, depending on if you need the person or if you don't, right? If you need them for production, then there's a level that you just have to tolerate that. If you don't need them for production, then I think you can probably manage the schedule. And I think we got this after a few months of, you know, you still, I think you want to maintain that relationship. The people probably still very much respect him. I think you don't want to take it out on the staff if they're still deferring to him. I mean, there's a loyalty there and I don't think you can blame them for that. But it's real hard. It's real hard for these sellers to let go sometimes and know that you have to kind of make your own mistakes and do it your own way. So my suggestion, first off, is if we're purchasing a practice, and in this case, a he that's going to be working back for you, is just like you said, we want to really look in our due diligence phase of the size of this practice. And so we always, when we purchase a practice, you want to go in, you want to do as much as you can. So if it was doing, let's say, 70000 of clinical and 20000 of hygiene, then it's basically like a 1-1 collection practice. And if you've been out for seven or eight months and you're purchasing a practice, obviously you're not able to check the hygiene. Obviously you're not able to do all the clinical. So what we're going to need to do there is we're going to have to suck it up because yep. you can't do the work. But if I've been out three, four, five years and I've got my HD or GPR program, I've taken this course and that course, and I can do 5,000 clinical a day, tells me which I can do this amount of production. First of all, in the due diligence phase, when I help you buy the practice, what we're gonna do is we don't need him or her to be around very much. Mm-mm. And if I do, I don't want them to be there four days. I'm gonna scale them back immediately to maybe it's a two day a week type rotation, or it's gonna scale back a lot of times from three days a week for the first three months, two days a week for the next three months after that, one day a week, et cetera, then it's just gonna be as needed basis. So the numbers always tell me how this is going to play out and how we're going to strategize about him or her working back. Well, and I think as a buyer, what I see often is there's a lack of confidence that they're going to be able to do it. And so they want to commit the seller to being there way longer than they probably need them to. They're like, I know I really want the seller to be there for four days a week for six or seven months. And we're like... You don't want to commit yourself to that, right? right? Because what if what do you know, old man Loretto can't let go <laughs> and is like just overpowering? Like you want that flexibility. So I think it's helpful for a seller and a buyer because sellers, sometimes you think that you want to be around. You don't know what it's like to be on the other side of the coin and be the associate. So flexibility, if there's not a need for the production, flexibility and how the associate agreement or the work back provision is worded of the parties will mutually agree, you know, some kind of stair step approach like Charles just mentioned, like something like that that provides you the unknown because you will be more comfortable buyers than you anticipate being more quickly and sometimes faster, especially if you don't have a safety net. I love, I don't know, just the lack of confidence that yeah. our buyers it's have. Real. You it's real. It's scary. They're, they're very mm-hmm. nervous and it's just like, I think more and more that we do this, is it's fun now. I'm 20 years in the game. I'm relentless. I'm like, nope, we're doing it and you're yep. going to be fine. We don't need him around, you know, four days like you thought. It's three days, it's two days. This is what you're going to do. You sure, Charles? Like, absolutely, this is what we're doing. Positive. <laughs> All right, question here is pros and cons of just coming straight out of school and, let's say, working, get the experience, versus doing a GPR or AGE program. What are your thoughts there? The pros of it is you're going to be able to do more clinically. You're going to have more experience. You're probably going to be faster if you do a GPR or an AGD. You might have more debt. 
so con, but again, in the big scheme of things, if we're owning, we don't see that as a con. So I think the pros is simply that you're going to be able to take on more, more quickly, especially if you go to a good productive program. Yeah. So my thoughts there is just when you do select these, if you're not in the state of New York where it's required, but if, if you have this option where you really want to push yourself clinically and you're applying to AGU GPR programs, I really like programs that when you're looking at them, that place 100 implants for that first year, you know, is a goal, something that's just really highly productive, almost in those hospital settings where they just throw you in there and kind of figure it out. The same with some of these uh, DSO programs, that some of them have some really good CE, you know, obviously I'm not focused on where we're just treating a bunch of kids. I want something that's kind of well-balanced mm-hmm. from a production you know, standpoint. Some of these DSO-type environments, you're not going to get any of the, the specialty-type experience. Mm-hmm. They bring in their periodontists, they bring in their surgeons, they bring in the orthodontists. So you're not going to get exposed to a lot of those procedures, just kind of shadowing the doctor. So yep. that's my thoughts there. And then this one's very short. Like, what are the areas of concerns I have? And all they put is initial steps. So if someone says they're concerned about what the initial step is, what does that mean to you? I hear that as when someone's like, so how do I get going? Yeah. Right? Like maybe you've sold me on this practice ownership thing, but like now what do I do? Right. So I think first is clearly the best question and most popular episode we have thus far is how to find an opportunity. Like you need to find something to buy before you can worry about what that ownership looks like. You just got to find the dang thing. Yeah. And shout out to Rachel. She probably is listening, but I read her cover letter today and she's been out for seven years. And I'm like, girl, let's get with it. Give me the freaking mail campaign and let's get it on. So she wrote me back this morning, beautiful cover letter, beautiful family. And she's got a great story and it was so well written. And so I'm betting her, I always say, is you do this mail campaign and it doesn't work. You just email me and tell me how many times you put the letter out, what you did. If I can't correct something, create some opportunity for you. It's the best state, best wine in your town next time. Well, I talked to a guy today who we diligenced an opportunity that he found using the mail campaign. And he said he had a bunch of responses, but this is the one he wants. So, I mean, I think that's the first step. I mean, we can take a step back further and say, you got to figure out what you want, what type of practice you want, where you want to be. But I mean, I think finding it and then figuring out what you're looking at, which we have a bunch of resources throughout the episodes. We're going to talk more this season about how to analyze the opportunity and kind of all the, how everything's related and the components yes. and cash flow. So we'll get there. We clearly have resources, but I mean, I think finding it and analyzing it are the initial steps so that you know what you like and what you don't. Yeah, so it goes back to that, you know, what does it gross? What does it collect? Can you do the dentistry? What's the debt going to be? My example earlier, well, it didn't have all the stuff I wanted. I'm going to have to borrow another hundred plus thousand, but it only cost you 12 grand. Oh, and I forgot to tell you, I'm from there. I forgot to tell you that mm-hmm. I'm engaged and we're getting married here. And I forgot to tell you all these things. I'm like, well, it sounds like we're going to do this deal regardless. Yeah. Right? So why are we dogging it? This is actually yeah. a good opportunity. So just to understand how to look big picture that, that you like a deal when it comes across your plate so you know not to mess it up. Yeah. Let's see. He says, what are the best things to look for when purchasing? What makes it a good practice? I mean, outside of the obvious, like everyone say it with me, cash flow, that's clearly number one. But what makes it a good practice to me is, well, what's your definition of good? Like, do you want something that's fee for service? Is it in your hometown? Is it only three days a week because you want to have a family? I mean, there are a lot of good practices out there that are not a good fit for everyone who looks at them. So, I mean, that's kind of a question that we can't answer for you Yeah, outside of financials. Two extremes here. You could look at it as one practice is this super high-end 
well-known, I can think of a, a guy that we helped purchase uh, a CD practice. Mm-hmm. And so we purchased like this very well-known name type practice in the Southeast. And he was young, a new AACD member. We purchased his practice and it was perfect. He yeah. wanted that name. He wanted those patients. He wanted those procedures. He didn't mind paying for it. And you could take somebody else and they could look at us. Good old Crown and Bridge practice, 2,000 active patients doing none of those procedures, mm-hmm. but their drive is to do it. Mm-hmm. So they purchase the practice at a small price and then they grow the practice to be able to, mm-hmm. to create those types of patients that are there. Yep. They've just never been presented to. So it's fun to be able to dive into what it is that they're looking for on these initial calls that we have, as well as to look inside this practice and say, is that really going to you know help achieve achieve that goal? So yeah. Yeah, good is relative. Yes, yes. You know, I watch all these freaking Facebook groups. I don't know if you're if you're in it, Christy, but we, we watch I sit there and read all these Facebook groups and it's like, you know, member question, what would you buy this practice? Well, you know, like, can we just ask some basic questions? 74 people buy it, buy it. Horrible. Don't do it. Start do a startup. And they're not asking the basic fundamental questions about the business. Yep. Was it gross? Was it net? Can you do the dentistry? Your wife like? I mean, everybody knows everybody. <laughs> yes. We're all experts. Yes. All on all, Facebook. Yeah, yes. Here we go. What are some red flags when looking at ownership? So I guess this is a practice that's for sale. And let's just assume somebody's looking at the deal. What are some red flags? that the young buyer should be looking for. So if you've heard me lecture, I like to say there's not red flags, there's yellow flags. Like to me, there's nothing about a practice that is a red flag initially, right? Like some people would say, whoa, if the new patient count is low or if the seller's hesitant to give you the tax returns, you know, that type of thing. Like at the outset, a lot of those things can easily be explained, right? Low patient numbers, they don't advertise. Like, they've had no interest in advertising. It doesn't have to mean that the demographics aren't there for you to grow it. They're hesitant to give you tax returns. I just talked to someone today who had their entire identity stolen and therefore is very hesitant to give out any tax returns, right? But he was very open with the information, just was hesitant to provide the actual document. Now, if you are about to close and they won't give you a tax return, well, I mean, I think we can decide that that's transitioned from a yellow flag to a red flag. But I think at the outset, I think understanding the context behind things, generally, if a seller is hesitant to give information or wants you to make commitments before giving you the data that's necessary. I don't like that. I think that that doesn't speak well. But again, I think there's very few things that are like, stop, don't go any further. This is a problem. I mean, you want to plan, you know, yeah. just to kind of wing it. Just like, For on, sure. let's hope this works out. No. If that identity thing, someone gave me that scenario, so that's fine. Would they feel comfortable at least at sharing the information? Can we do a secured portal or whatever? Can maybe the CPA send it to us, you know, secured? But in the end, a bank's going to have to look at this information at one point. Yep. And so ask some basic questions, maybe send a profit and a loss statement, something to where we can feel comfortable about this opportunity. There's another part of this, I know us being financial people that, that look at this, but there's also a huge just emotional kind of gut thing that we've mm, got to always listen to. thousand percent. And so, especially if we're going to go into a long relationship, long relationships, again, are going to be more like a partnership. But for you to interview this doctor and for you to interview that team and you to interview perhaps that doctor's spouse, but your spouse to meet Mm -hmm. the entire team and to be able to see the interactions and working relationships with the patients in this entire thing, you're going to be able to see that person in action. And one of the calls yesterday, that's what he was selling me on. Just the, the character and the quality of the seller. 
it just you could tell there was this yeah, admiration and love yeah. and everyone loved can't him. Can't value them. That is what you're looking for, mm-hmm. and you got to know going in that you do have to listen to your gut for sure. Yeah, this one's a, it's kind of a balance thing. So it says owning and having the financial autonomy while still having the ability for family. So it's kind of that work-life balance thing of the money and ownership and family. So what are your thoughts there? Ugh, I hate this whole concept. I mean, I think that you have a level of risk. If you choose not to own, then you probably don't have financial autonomy or it takes longer to get that because it's harder to get there. But you have risk that you cannot continue. So that is a huge deal. I think that if you don't own, then it's much harder to get that autonomy and balance that with a family. I think from a family perspective, you can own a practice, but it could be the practice that you want to own. If you want to work three days a week or you want to close the practice every day at three or you want to get an associate in there part-time so that you can go be with your family during the hours of four to eight or whatever it might be, owning practice is hard, so I don't want to take that away. I mean, it's going to take additional time and effort, but I think the balance and the autonomy it can create is good. Well, you got to remember, too, like you got the reasons of why. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you understand your why, then this whole podcast is about the how. But if you're not focused on that you're going to make typically twice as much money as an owner, the building equity in the practice, the tax planning, the pension planning, to be able to kind of prepare for retirement. And like you said, just that control and autonomy. That, that's, if you don't understand that, then you're going to be lost and you're never going to go purchase this practice. But in the end, I want you to find somebody that has a 2,000 active patient practice, that has the million-dollar practice, that's making the $400,000, that regrets this whole process. You do have to understand kind of the financial goal and, and why you're doing it. If you're purchasing a smaller practice, you plan on just doing it for three days a week and you're going to keep it at a 500 collection practice and you make 150000 and after debt, you're making 120. And you're like, well, I mean, this is just frustrating because I was an associate making 123 days a week and I'm making the same now and I got a lot more stresses. <laughs> That's 100% going to be true. Yeah. And so I would, in that example, say we probably shouldn't have bought the practice. I really want us to understand why and what this opportunity is going to be. And you, yeah, you're going to have to roll up your sleeve a little bit, but there's an opportunity here. And I think there's an opportunity for failure if you don't. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think all of this is a balance and ownership of time and money and control. And you have to figure out what your perfect balance of those three pieces are. Like, I can't think, and I'm sure someone will correct me, but I can't think of one kind of position where you have all the time in the world, all the power in the world, and all the money in the world, right? Like, you're always giving up one of those things. And that's why, honestly, people at the end of their dental practice ownership career sell, because they've changed the balance of what they want in those things. They've got enough of one, and now they want the other two. So everyone has their own mixture of those three, and you just have to kind of figure out what your formula is. So think about, like, a teacher that's got the time off. The teachers bring out time off. i got family and teachers. And they got to come home, they got to create papers. Yeah, they get a summer off, but then they're completely underpaid. They're stressed no matter what you do. You yeah. Know, you might as well. Have to love just, it. Yeah, just, just love what you do and then mm-hmm. create an opportunity. Uh, so we have time yourself. for one more. All so right, pick a one good one. More. You're always cutting me off. I know, I'm sorry. Let me make People sure only have, have so a... much time in their commute. <sighs> then here we go. Last question. So this is a concern. This is patient attrition. So how to ensure the new practice is going to succeed. So I think what this person is saying here is they're going to buy the practice and there's 1,800 active patients and they're all going to see old man Charles at the first hygiene visit and they're bailing. What are your thoughts there? They're all going to leave. <laughs> they are. Okay. They're all going to be crickets. I know. I mean, there are going to be people that leave, but you are going to 
you should. And what our experience is that most buyers have a little bit of a fire under them. They've just taken out a loan. They have energy. And so in our experience, while you might lose patience, you gain more than you lose if you've done your diligence and have the right marketing and, and, and are presenting yourself the right way. So, I mean, I think you'll always have the patients that leave. We cannot ensure your success. No one can ensure your success. But I think, you know, the front end work of that is what gets you through the yeah, initial so piece. My thoughts there is it certainly depends on the practice. So when you think about the practice, you're always thinking about your hygiene practice like a GP. You've got your hygiene and your pedo and you've got your recall systems with people already with their braces on. Okay, mm-hmm. These people are not going to leave. Young people always will say, they're always just so skeptical of this thing. Well, if Dr. Jones leaves, everyone's going to leave. At least, what would you say, 25 to 30% of patients? It's like, no, not. Think about the numbers here. We're talking, for example, 2,000 active patients. 500 people are just going to see a 28 year old owner and just be like, yeah, I'm out. And they're going to now, their number one fear is what to do in life go to a dentist. They've already got the relationship with the practice. They know how you that practice works with maybe insurance. They've got their relationship with the front desk. They've got the relationship with hygiene. And now I've got a young person coming in now, so I'm just going to bail. It's absolutely crazy. No. And what's crazy is I think they're thinking about this too much from a like owner and doctor perspective. And I'm going to say it, maybe give themselves a tad bit too much credit. Like if I go to the doctor while I'm slightly annoyed at my hygienist, Victoria, because she just totally was mean when I went yesterday. If my dentist decided he was going to transition, but Victoria stayed, I'd go to Victoria for as long as I needed to. Because, I mean, I don't know. I just would. I think the relationships that you have with those staff are so important. Yes, and this is where, man, for my senior guys and gals listen to this, it hurts their freaking ego. It does. It hurts their ego because in their mind, those 2,000 patients, they're going to follow them no matter what, and they've got this amazing thing, be quite honest. There are practices like that, for sure. sure. I mean, you've got some major name and you people from around the world that are traveling to your type of practice. Mm -hmm. It's a high-end specialty practice. I get it. You're an amazing endodontist, and they only want to refer to you, and you go uh, oh, five yeah. miles down the totally street, 100% they're going yep. to follow. But we're talking about just the traditional GPPDO work. They're going to stay. They really are. So you need to hear that confidence knowing that in our 100-plus transitions that we did in, in 2019, just didn't see that practice that crashed and burned and, and went mm-hmm. bankrupt now in 2020 because of all the patients leaving. Yeah, and I'll be sad. And I'll miss seeing my dentist, but I'll probably give the new guy a shot. Yeah, you're always going to give him a shot. So, okay. That was so fun. That's it. Hey, can we get a high five here? High five. Can we get some love here? Thanks for joining us today. Transition Talk. Subscribe, like us on Facebook, and listen in for the next episode. Thanks for your time. Good job, Christy.